Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the California Native Plant Society. California is a biodiversity hotspot on our planet, and CNPS is working to save the communities of plants and related beings that make it so. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In today's world of synthetic pharmaceuticals, Dr. Cassandra Quave believes our connection to the natural and plant world is in fact our greatest opportunity to discover new life-saving medicines needed in the medical challenges of our time, including pandemics and rising antibiotic resistance. Dr. Quave is a leading medical ethnobotanist. Her lab is based at Emory University, where she is also a professor. She joins us today to share more about her book, The Plant Hunter, The Scientist's Quest for Nature's Next Medicines, a very personal story of her search to develop new ways to fight illness and disease through the healing powers of plants. Cassandra, I am so pleased to be speaking with you today. Thank you for your time and for joining us. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer, for having me on the show. It's great to be here. I want to start by saying that I really loved the dedication in your book, The Plant Hunter, A Scientist's Quest for Nature's Next Medicines, as it reads, for the knowledge keepers and the wisdom seekers who delight in nature's beauty and revel in its complexity. I thought that was just beautiful, Cassandra. Thank you. Yeah, I guess it's that really is what the most special things are for me about nature is not only its beauty, but the immense complexity that keeps my mind very busy as a scientist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I were to throw out to you the the sort of question in its most distilled form, Cassandra, what gets you out of bed every day about your relationship with plants right now? How would you answer that? I mean, I think it's just, I have this thirst for knowledge, for understanding. I'm, I'm in a really unique position because I get to see the full cycle of how people in traditional cultures use plants as medicine. And yet, from a scientific perspective, we know almost nothing about how these medicines work. And what really gets me out of bed every day is the curiosity that I have to investigate that and to build a better understanding of how these plants work and bring that knowledge back to communities and hopefully forward to a broader population across the world to improve health. Yeah. And you do this in so many different ways um, that I love that complexity in and of itself. But first, I want to have you take us back. Take us back to your childhood, Cassandra. Who were the people and the places and the plants that grew you into a woman for whom this would be your your dedication in life? Oh, that's such a great question. Because, you know, we think a lot about the role of people in our lives, but not that many people ask me about the plants that helped to shape me. And, you know, I grew up in a very small rural town in Southwest Florida. And it was really a unique place to grow up because we spent, my sister and I spent every day outside. And many of those days I was out on crutches because I had one to two surgeries a year because of my, a number of different bone um, defects that I was born with. And so I was kind of constantly in and out of the hospital, but at home, you know, I, I'd get out on crutches um, with my dog <laughs> or a book and I would spend many of my days up in an oak tree and, you know, these beautiful live oaks have just these 
huge long branches that sweep down low that are easy to climb. Um, at least they were easier for me to climb. And just looking around those trees and, and trying to see, you know, what else lived there between the Spanish moss and all the little bryophytes, in some cases, orchids even, and all the insects. And so I was just always very curious with all the life that was happening all around me. And that really helped to shape this interest that I have still today about understanding how nature works. Yeah. Early in your life, as you relate in your book, you actually come up against not only the beauty of how nature works and the complexity in that beauty and that diversity, but you come up with some of it, like up against some of its harder complexities mm. that really force you and your family to face this concept of survival kind of up against part of nature's complexity. Yeah. Maybe talk a little bit about that and how that also helped um, in both good ways and really hard ways to, to direct your curiosity and the focus of your attention, because that seems to be a very pivotal, informing moment. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm trying to remember the exact epilogue I use for um, or epigraph I use for that chapter. It's been around, you know, looking death in the face <laughs> more than once. You know, you live more than once. And um, you live twice. You, you live only twice. live twice, right? Yeah, Something you only like that. Twice. It was beautiful. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's from the 007 series. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I was born with this very strange mixture of different bone defects, including short bones, missing bones in my right leg. Um, a, a very unusual constellation of, of deformities. And one of the challenges that I had early on in life was that because of the missing bones and because of the fragility of some of the bones in my foot, there was, you know, great fear that if I kept my leg, I would live a life of constant, constantly having it rebroken and have very, very, a need for very high kind of um, blocks on my shoes. Like, you know, there's a, photo I have of me um, at the age of two. I mean, in this, I have like a, you know, three to four inch kind of block beneath my right foot um, because there was such a disparity in length. And so when I was three, a decision was made to amputate below my knee to give me a better capacity for walking using a prosthetic limb. And this was really the, the best path forward determined by many different doctors my parents took me to. Unfortunately, <laughs> I obtained a hospital-acquired infection following the surgery. And, you know, this is not so unusual. Many people can get infections, post-surgical infections. And in my case, it went undetected initially. I was sent home. And um, a few days after being home, my mother noticed there was a strange smell and eventually decided to go against the, the orders not to touch the bandage and said unraveled it and found that there was a very um, serious infection. I had to be brought back to the hospital where I stayed for quite some time to treat this infection. Luckily, I survived it. I don't know that I would have today with some of the strains that we have because of the virulence, because of the new versions of antibiotic-resistant bacteria that we have that we didn't have in the 1980s. So that experience definitely shaped me and made me really think about, as I grew older, think about microbes in a different way. 
from my observations of things growing in, in trees or crawling around on trees, I also became very interested in water and bodies of water. And some of my earliest science fair experiments involve, you know, me looking at water through a microscope and drawing all the little creatures. And when I was writing the book, I have so many great science fair stories and my editor's like, that's a, there's a, there's a lot of science fair in here. <laughs> I like it, but it's, it's amazing. It was so transformative. She's like, yeah, I think we could <laughs> cut it we back. We need to just, narrow it down. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll just do the key experiments. But really for me, science fair was like my sport as a kid. And it was through those investigations of nature, of seeing the diversity of life in water and then later in saliva and later in hamburger meat. And then as I got yeah, older- Yeah, the E. coli and the hamburger e. meat, disgustingly <laughs> satisfying experiment as you describe it, yes. Exactly, very smelly experiment, you know? It's like, <laughs> um, but yeah, and then I got interested in, you know, what does radiation do to meat? Because this is another kind of process that can be used in helping to reduce the amount of, of bacterial load on different food products. And so I think the lesson there was, you know, through doing these science fair experiments, I was able to really let my curiosity just expand and, and gave me the opportunity to ask many different questions. And in a funny way, I never really stopped doing science fair experiments. It's just now I have a larger team and much more sophisticated um, equipment to play with. Right, right. Yeah. And I think, you know, a couple of the things that really struck me at this moment was this sort of parallel education of young Cassandra, which could have led to um, fear, could have led to complete immobility in the face of all of these obstacles and challenges. But instead, you take that other beautiful route in nature, which is like fierce tenacity and determination, and this reveling in the complexity that did almost kill you mm -hmm. um, at the age of three and caused you an enormous amount of pain and strife uh, for you and your family. And yet you just like dig deeper. And it's a beautiful uh, lesson tale, of course, uh, but it also leads you into this beautiful heart of our natural world and moves you towards, um, you know, a field commonly referred to as ethnobotany um, and to really finding even more of these epiphany moments in which you are recognizing that everything, you know, that could harm us is also sort of twinned with many, many things that can also help us uh, in, in these circumstances. T take us into your ethnobotanical journey as it, as it begins, because it's really beautiful. Yeah, thank you. So just for a frame of reference, ethnobotany has been described as a science of survival. It's a field of study that's dedicated to really understanding how people relate to and use and leverage natural resources to promote their survival. So in some cases that might be for knowledge of plants for food or for medicine or for tools or fish poisons or hunting elements. I mean, the list goes on and on. And so I first was introduced to ethnobotany when I was um, in college, near the end of my college, you know, I, I had gone to to actually to Emory where I work today for my undergraduate degree. 
Um, I was studying biology and then I kind of fell into anthropology and just kept taking classes to the point where I had a double major because I just enjoyed it so much. Um, but I was a pre-med student. And, you know, until this point in my life, I really saw medicine as composed of pharmacy and surgery. And that's what there was to medicine. And, but it was through some of those courses in anthropology, especially in medical anthropology and cultural anthropology courses, that it started to make me think about broader context for how you know, how different cultures viewed health, healing, disease, the disabled identity, which were all things that were very, you know, near and dear to my heart. As I was trying, you know, as a person in their late teens, trying to understand who I was, you know, this is a, a time where you're trying to integrate all this information. And I took a class on tropical ecology. And that's, you know, the class where I really learned about ethnobotany, which all of a sudden, there was this way of merging my love for nature and biology with my fascination for culture. And that was kind of like a really big moment for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, reflecting on it now, I don't even re recall exactly what my sequence of decisions was, but I just decided I had to go to the Amazon. And so I did. <laughs> I mean, it's like, and I, 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 I went for two trips um, the first was in the summer before my senior year, and I spent six weeks working with a healer, um, a medicine man that um, lived in the upper Napo River region of Peru in the Peruvian Amazon in a part known as the Varzea. It's a flooded forest. So really amazing place when the waters are high during the, the, the rainy season, the forest actually floods and river dolphin and fish come in and swim through the forest. And I mean, it's just such a magical place. And then I also went back in the dry season when the, when the waters are lower. So this is just a, an incredibly biodiverse place. And, you know, I was just fascinated by the ways that this healer was using plants as medicine and how he engaged with his patients and not only how he used plants as medicine, but also how he used plants to better understand or learn how to best treat his patients because he also took plants to divine, you know, what was their diagnosis and what was the best way to treat them. And um, his name is Don Antonio Montero Pisco, and he really opened up my eyes to this idea that medicine is about more than pharmacy and surgery, that there's also a spirituality element to it, and that there was so much out there um, that was being used by traditional healers that Western scientists had never begun to look at. I'll give a little pause of respect for who this mentor was in, mm -hmm. in your life. We'll move back around to that towards the end. But this moment in the book where you give us some incredible numbers around like numbers of plants and numbers of plants that Western medicine has to date actually studied for their pharmacological attributes, no matter how they might be used. And in the face of these numbers, you recognize how incredibly limited both our studies have been, but also our imaginations have been mm -hmm. in how we approach this incredible kingdom of the, the plant and or the other kingdom of the, the fungi in working with them to help heal the things that are 
uh, ailing us, but maybe even also ailing our planet. Yeah. And there is this, your recognition of that partnership not being well partnered just yet Mm -hmm. uh, is really, it was really interesting to to me. And again, seems to, at least as you look at it in hindsight, be part of what starts to drive your work from there. So take us to the next step. Well, I'll start by sharing some of those numbers. I mean, it's hard to wrap your head around big numbers, I think sometimes, but what is known is that on Earth, we have at least 374,000 species of plants. And of those, around 9% um, of those of all species have been documented as being used in some form of traditional medicine. So that's around 33,000. At the time of writing the book, it was around 33,000. Now it's a little bit closer to 34,000 based on things that have been under uncovered in records, but still roughly 9%. And so when you look at the scientific literature, as I do, (laughs) evaluating paper after paper, really trying to understand what do we actually know about how plants work and what do we know about their complex chemistries and their biological activities? I mean, I estimate that we've only maybe looked at the low hundreds in terms of species. And of the ones that we have looked at, I mean, these have been the medicines that have transformed what we know today is modern medicine. I think there's an important history lesson that's often missing in the way in which we teach our pharmacists and our medical students that are going through training. Many of them don't realize or recognize or have ever been told the story of where so many of these medicines come from. There are some of our you know, most essential medicines listed as listed by the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines for cancer, for pain, for infection, for heart disease, The list goes on and on. And and in fact, many of the listeners may not recognize that there are lots of things that you get over the counter that were first discovered in plants. I mean, um, most of our, our, for example, our laxatives that you find in um, in the pharmacy are based on plant derived compounds. So there's, there's this rich history that somehow is not being discussed and it's not being taught. And I want to I want to just make one more connection there that you make in the book, which I, I find really important. And that is, and you list, you know, your your aspirin originally came from mm-hmm. willow, uh, you know, a very common cancer treatment, post-chemotherapy, sometimes before, I guess, I just know my mom had it after, mm-hmm. uh, is Taxol, which comes from the U plant. Mm-hmm. The like you make this list of all of these, and not only were they derived from plants, but they were also derived from plants because some traditional culture and and history of people that often was subsequently erased from the history uh, showed it to Western science first, exactly. right? And so you mm-hmm. keep making all of these connections. And even in what we do know, we've often only looked at it in a very specific way. Yes. So that we haven't fully like looked at all of the ways this could be potentially beneficial to our knowledge base because we've only looked at it through one lens. And once we have that lens, we apparently put a box around ourselves and, and don't look anymore. So yes. keep, you no, keep going now. That's, you, you, this, is so, <laughs> I'm, I'm, this is so heartwarming to hear from you. Like as you totally, you get it. That's exactly what I was going for, for the readers to capture, you know, um, a single 
a single plant tissue, let's say a leaf, can have hundreds of unique molecules. Plants are among the most complex when it comes to numbers of distinct molecules found in their different tissues, much more complex than soil microbes, much more complex than fungi. I mean, they just have these amazing biosynthetic factories in their tissues. And the reason they make these are, of course, for their own defense and to attract other organisms nearby because they can't get up and move around. They're sessile. And so going back to this idea of, you know, a lot of our foundational therapies were originally discovered in nature, often from plants and often from plants that were used in traditional medicine. I want to tie this now to this question I often get. There are a lot of people that are baffled that how can I, as a serious, you know, modern scientist, I'm based in a premier medical school, be able to bridge these two gaps of something that's often seen as fringe of traditional medicine and then modern medicine. And I'm, I'm coming to the realization, you know, through all these discussions is that, you know, it's not so much of a bridge and we can't look at these in opposition because the reality is modern medicine, as we know it today, was actually built on the backbone of traditional medicine. Right. So this is something that has been built upon and based upon, in many cases, a lot of these theories of, of medicine, a lot of the, the pharmacopoeia or the medical materials of these different cultures. Going back to this idea of we've only looked at a few of the compounds in these plants, you know, there's a lot that's been done on alkaloids. It's a certain type of compound that's easy to extract through acid-base reactions. Think of your caffeine, your morphine, your codeine, these types of things. But there are a lot of other compounds in there as well. We're also seeing, you know, for folks that are doing more research on cannabis, um, it's not just about that single compound THC. There are lots of other um, terpenes and, and a mixture of many different compounds that can yield an overall kind of synergistic effect. And nature really works in synergy. In modern medicine, we've taken a very reductionist paradigm of taking one molecule and thinking about how that one molecule might hit one target. And what we've learned is that that kind of approach, which we also use in modern antibiotics of taking one compound against one target, often has a limited lifespan. Because when you're dealing with infection, especially, those microbes learn to, you know, evade that activity by developing resistance over time. And so I'm trying to take some of these lessons of mixtures of synergies, the lessons of which plants are better for different types of infections as we look in the laboratory for new ways to treat some of these very aggressive drug-resistant infections. This is Cultivating Place. Dr. Cassandra Quave is a leading medical ethnobotanist and researcher. She is with us today to share more about her work, much of it explored in depth in her recent book, The Plant Hunter, The Scientist's Quest for Nature's Next Medicines, a very personal story of her search to develop new ways to fight illness and disease through the healing powers of plants. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible by the California Native Plant Society on a mission to support California's native plants and places using both head and heart. CNPS is proud to be working in support of the indigenous-led initiative, Saging the World. 
Metric tons of white sage, salvia apiana, are illegally, unethically, and violently poached annually to supply an international market. This plant is sacred to and deeply rooted in the cultures and lifeways of the indigenous communities of Southern California and Northern Baja, the only region where white sage naturally occurs in the world. Rose Ramirez and Deborah Small, authors of the Ethnobotany Project and White Sage Advocates, say it's time to sage the world to boycott wild-crafted sage products, to grow native plants like white sage for our own uses at our own homes, and to reorient our perspectives on plants from seeing them as resources to valuing them as loving relationships. For more information on how you can support this initiative, please visit cnps.org forward slash conservation forward slash white sage. Hey, it's Jennifer. I wanted to share with you all a really affirming note I was recently sent by a listener, Ben, in Cincinnati. He wrote, Today's show on the International Rescue Committee and Gardens and Gardening for Refugees was brilliant. For the past 50 years, I've gardened at home, donating what we don't eat to food pantries. Side, back, and part of the front lawns are now a serious vegetable garden, and I help neighbors turn lawns into gardens. There are fewer sunny front lawns covered with irrigated turf grass every year. The IRC is invaluable, as are our own needs at our own homes. We can do both. We can do it all, Ben writes. Thank you again for the IRC Refugee Garden broadcast. It was important. Signed, Ben. Thank you, Ben, and thank you, Cultivating Place community out there, listening every week, donating monthly or annually as you are able, including most recently, generous donations from Patricia, Sabrina, Jeff, Josh, and Terry. I feel the same way, Ben. I feel the same way about every episode of Cultivating Place. Our gardens are important. Engaging with them to the full extent of their positive contributions, socially, environmentally, economically, and spiritually, as individuals and communities cannot be overstated. Likewise, my gratitude to you all for making my work on Cultivating Place possible cannot be overstated. Thank you. If you would like to help support the weekly growing work of Cultivating Place, please follow the support button link at the top of every page at cultivatingplace.com. You, listeners and supporters, make these civil gardening and earth-changing conversations possible. Thank you.
I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. In her recent book, The Plant Hunter, The Scientist's Quest for Nature's Next Medicines, leading medical ethnobotanist Dr. Cassandra Quave shares the very personal story of her search to develop new ways to fight illness and disease through the healing powers of plants. We're back now to our conversation with Dr. Quave, who tells us more about her her specific collection of plants and plant extracts from which she is conducting her medical research. Talk about your collection and how your work specifically is beginning to um, expand on that library of knowledge from which things are looked at, perceived, studied, and hopefully... um, learned something from? So following my work in Peru, I began doing research in the Mediterranean, um, specifically in Southern Italy. It was where some of my early work began. And since then, I've, I work in the Balkans, um, different islands, the Mediterranean, and we've built a global network of scientists and collaborators in different countries from Kosovo to Pakistan, China, um, Lebanon, South Africa, Egypt, Colombia, um, I'm, I'm really believe that in order to make the kind of impact we hope to make, we have to have global international partnerships that are equitable and also contribute towards the building of greater research capacity with those partners. Um, and so when we initiate new collections in, a, in, in, in different countries, we always work with local partners, uh, local researchers, and often with local students. And um, some of the things that we do is we also do knowledge exchange where students can come and train with us in some cases. In other cases, I bring students over um, to those countries where we work together in in kind of a, a, a in teams um, for these expeditions. But also importantly, we take our collaborations, not only with local scientists, very important, very, very, you know, as a, as a high priority, but also those collaborations and long-term relationships with communities. And so this is, I think, something that's that's definitely, you know, been an area where ethnobotanists have placed a lot of, of um, emphasis in recent years. It's to ensuring that we have equitable um, benefit sharing in place and that we also have um, very strong senses of ethics and of partnerships with local communities. Um, this is very distinct from, you know, the prior eras of kind of colonial exploitation where people would come and take what they wanted and leave and often leave the local people with um, some pretty bad consequences. And the, the, the awful truth is that many of us benefit today unwittingly from some of those exploitative practices. If you've ever had quinine in your tonic water, that was taken from South America. Um, modern surgery benefited from scientists that took, you know, tubo and curare poison out and studied it. I mean, so there's, there's this kind of ugly underside of a lot of these discoveries that we have to be very cognizant of and sure that we're not contributing to that kind of work. Um, and so we build these partnerships, we work with local communities, we obtain consensus in our analyses. So another question I often get is like, well, how do you know if healer X or healer Y is really telling you the right stuff? How do you know they're not just some, some quack for lack of a better word? 
And the truth of the matter is in places where people are heavily reliant on their environment for their survival, both in terms of knowledge of wild foods for, for eating and also wild plants for medicine, this knowledge is not just held by one elder in the community. It's often held by women, especially elder heads of household, elder women in each household. And so we are interviewing, but then there's also other knowledge the men may have. So we're interviewing different different um, people in different kind of parts of the community to get a better holistic understanding of plant knowledge in that whole community. Um, and based on that, we can build consensus around which plants are the most important to the community, which ones are most frequently used, how are they prepared, um, and so on. From that point, we collect the plants, we identify them botanically, we authenticate them. So that means that we take something called an herbarium voucher specimen, which is basically if you've ever pressed a flower between pages of a book and let it dry, we do that just on a bit more of a, of a large scale, like the size of a newspaper sheet. And we importantly also deposit those in the home country. So we're not just taking plants out to our herbarium, but we're ensuring that we're also helping build up the resources of the local country's herbarium. We also take some of the plant tissues, and all of this is, of course, done under appropriate permits for export and import um, back to the laboratory. So again, for any of the listeners, don't just grab plants and <laughs> bring them back to the U.S. Like you have to have a lot of permits um, to ensure that this is done correctly and also without endangering um, U.S. agriculture <laughs> or whichever country you're based in um, from, from potential plant pests. And in the lab, we um, subject these materials to a number of steps to extract them. And the best way to describe, you know, an extraction process is that people are very familiar with is, you know, when you make coffee in the morning, you start with clear water, that's your solvent, you add your plant material, which would be your ground up coffee beans, um, and you pass that hot water through your coffee beans, and in the end, you have this black liquid, that black liquid would be your extract. The only difference is in the lab, we have our equipment is a bit more sophisticated. We can do things with different solvents, do it under pressure, do it under sonication. But in the end, we're left with a colored liquid that we then um, dry down through evaporation processes and also freeze drying. And so in the end, we have this kind of goopy crystalline plant powder that's not actually composed of the plant materials itself. So there's no leaves or stems or anything like that in it, but it's actually the chemicals that have been pulled out of the plant and dried into this powder. And that's what we call our chemical library that we then test in all of our, our all of our antimicterial models. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning of your, mm -hmm. of your answer and uh, just acknowledge and applaud this new culture of ethics and reciprocity mm -hmm. and consent in working with uh, traditional people and um, plant lives around our planet so that mm -hmm. we aren't just essentially raping, pillaging, destroying, exactly. and taking, mm -hmm. uh, and then not sending any of the benefit, whether that's the knowledge or the financial um, gain from a discovery, uh, back to invest in, in other groups. So well done. Uh, great, you know, 1992 <laughs> Rio convention yes. um, <laughs> on biodiversity and the Nagoya protocol, but just as an ethic, not, not a mandated protocol. And at this point in your quest to 
expand the library and expand the thinking, you know, and, and you open the book with this just beautiful description of slogging through mud and, and alligators and, you know, I don't know <laughs> what all, leeches and snakes and mosquitoes uh, in search of a particular, uh, I think it was a ruse. Was it a ruse or a rubrus? That, I think um, that one was the example with the rubus. Yeah, with a blackberry bush. Mm -hmm. So you have developed this library of these chemicals. Describe, now that you've told us the mm -hmm. process, describe what your li what library you are working with now. Like Thank you. how many numbers and... Yeah. Yeah. So we currently, I think as, as uh, with our most recent count, we have over 700 species of plants and fungi in the collection. And... Again, this library is composed of plants that are primarily used in different cultures for infectious and inflammatory disease. And so I, there are a lot of medicinal plants that we have not included in the library. As I said, there's over 30, 33,000, 34,000 species. That, so we're really trying to target- That we know of. That we right? know yeah. of, exactly. Right. We're really trying to target our collection on things that people are using for infection and inflammation. So what do I mean by that? You know, I'm in the Department of Dermatology. Um, I'm not a physician. I'm a, um, you know, PhD scientist, but I'm very interested in inflammatory skin disease. So think about things like eczema, burn wounds, abscesses, furuncles, um, infected cuts, um, wounds that don't heal very well, diabetic foot ulcers, venous leg ulcers. So I'm very interested in kind of the skin environment because it's also easy for people to describe to me what their, what their disease looks like. Mm -hmm. And that helps us kind of narrow down on like what might be involved, which pathogens might be involved. But then we're also very interested in plants used for sexually transmitted diseases, for Dr. gastrointestinal Cassandra problems, Quave urinary tract infections, in respiratory infections, dental oral infections. So we're pretty broad when it comes to kind of As we come back, Dr. Quaid is sharing more about her process um, and so working with having plant such extracts a, once she has a discovered some medicinal or pharmaceutical value there. So I'll start with the beginning of like, how do we decide which ones to really hone in on? Yep. And we often do something called high throughput screening, which is where you can take a lot of these, this library and run it through a series of tests in very small volume. So we're talking like the size of a raindrop in a very tiny test tube setup. And so we run these reactions, we see which ones look promising, but we also test them for cytotoxicity. So there are lots of things in nature that may kill or inhibit the growth of a, of a microbial cell, but they may also hurt you as well. And so we have to be very clear in understanding what is the dose kind of ratio of activity versus toxicity. So that's a big deciding factor. We screen these when they're still in their very complex state with many different compounds present. And so when we find some that look interesting that are, that are showing to be not too toxic, we then start diving down and that's when we start to really look for the needle in the haystack. You can think of each extract as a haystack with each piece of hay being a different molecule, different compound. And so we use these tools in chemistry to tease those apart now, unfortunately, this process in itself is very reductionist because we're looking for those isolated compounds. The challenge here is that in modern science as we have it today, it is technically very difficult to study these complicated mixtures. You can get ideas on the size of the molecules, but there's not a lot of great databases still to give you a definitive 
identification of each of these molecules in a mixture. So you really almost have to isolate it. We're working towards developing new technologies in that sphere using a kind of um, cryo-electron microscopy tool, micro-electron diffraction tool, um, in collaboration with partners at, um, at Caltech with Hosea, Dr. Hosea Nelson, UCLA, Dr. Yi Tang, and, and Georgia Tech, um, Dr. Julia Kubinek. And this is where I think that we're going to see a lot of advances is by using this technique to look at these complex mixtures, but we're still at the infancy of that technology. So for now, we have to really isolate these compounds. Now, once we have something that looks like it could have some pharmacological potential, we're still at the very beginning of the story. Oftentimes, these you know these molecules, I like to think of them Dr. as Cassandra kind of like chemical Quave blueprints. Is a leading medical ethnobotanist Those in, and in some researcher. cases need to be modified She's with us today or improved more upon about by medicinal chemists. So this is where we partner with other scientists that have different skill sets. So we are good at finding these plants. molecules, understanding we'll right how the back. plants Stay work. But to move something from an early lead into a drug takes an entire other set of knowledge. Hey, it's Jennifer. Um, and so wow, right? that's kind of the way I mean, that the science we works. Know and you then try and find healing, someone that's interested in this of our to take it further along. Medicines we also work with the University to develop patents on these, and that's important but not Dr. just Cassandra for ensuring Quave that the technology is protected for, for future development, in her work. but also that provides an avenue through which benefit sharing can take place down the road if this is ever commercialized. And so the, the challenge, of course, is the, the field of infectious disease, medicinal plants especially grow. in antibiotics, is not this, very attractive to pharma. Is truly you know, a lot of people ask, well, is pharma knocking at my door all the so time? And I mean, they're not knocking on Diversity anyone's door that's working on antibiotics, is, is the truth the of the matter. Of because there's no return on investment. Um, it's not a good bet for them in, in the current friends. economic market. And more why is that? In our gardens. Hmm. More of this in places of higher education. Um, I'll try and more of this explain it in, in a, few simple, labs, a few simple please. points. You know, if you compare an antibiotic to a drug like something that you would need to take for a chronic disease, let's say diabetes, um, you're going to take that chronic disease drug over the span of your lifetime. An antibiotic you're going to take for a week or two if successful. We're also very used to these very old antibiotics being very cheap. If your kid has like an ear infection, you get prescribed Augmentin, you know, you're used to paying maybe a dollar or something at the pharmacy. There's not this will, I think, also to pay these very high prices for antibiotics um, because of that history. Lastly, you know, physicians rightly will preserve and kind of shelve the new antibiotics that, that do come out, hold on to those for the most serious of patients because they want to use what they have in their arsenal that, that can still work, but not necessarily use these new, new drugs because they want to save them for the ones that fail all of their therapies. And so from an economic model, that's just not a very good you know, attractive kind of way to get a drug out. And the financial burden is very high. You know, it costs between 800 million to a billion dollars to bring a new drug to market. Right. So part of me is very happy with this scenario because one, I don't love the model wherein big pharma makes a gajillion, gajillion mm -hmm. dollars off of a drug that was derived from a plant that was taken from a traditional community somewhere, some anywhere, mm -hmm. uh, whether that's, you know, in the swamps of Florida or in the Amazon. Mm -hmm. And I don't love the big pharma model. On the other hand, 
it is a worrisome scenario because we want this kind of study funded. Yeah. Um, and this speaks to, you know, some systematic problems with the way we fund our science generally. And having it be based on all funding is a function of uh, some big pharmaceutical company making a gajillion dollars um, is probably not the right model. We're learning um, slowly. Yeah. It's a dilemma. The patent world is a dilemma because... I want to incentivize good research and I want to incentivize all of the hard work that goes into a great discovery, mm -hmm. but I also want open access to this kind of knowledge uh, that was offered to us by our planet. Uh, we had to figure it out, but it was given to us, then not have it inaccessible mm -hmm. to that same small rural community in Georgia or Florida or the Amazon. So there's, there's a lot of mess right there. How do you go forward, given the fact that Big Pharma is not apparently funding this work you're doing? You know, that's that's a really tough question. And I, I don't have the solution right now. I mean, there are certainly other areas where you can get things commercialized and picked up for development much more quickly than infectious disease. Um, I guess where I stand on this is I know at my core that we need new antibiotics. The need is not going away. It's only going to continue to grow. So in my line of thinking, this is the area where I think I can make the biggest contribution. It may not pay off for me ever in terms of like, you know, of getting the, the kind of, uh, of funding and things that we need right now for the lab, but I think it will make important contributions for the future. And um, this is just, it's just the writings on the wall. The crisis is coming. The crisis in many ways is already here. And I think that the economic model is going to have to change once that kind of crisis arrives. And you know that when you think about pandemic aware, like readiness, right? Some of the problems with funding in science is it's often this kind of spurts, like, you know, huge amount of emphasis and then it's dropped and we kind of lose our attention you know, same thing when like ebola pops up it's like oh everybody's let's put all this money on ebola and then all of a sudden that kind of trickles away let's put all this money on on covid and that kind of trickles away or on amr i mean we have this kind of boom and bust model of science it just doesn't work we have to have more stable funding not only to do the work but also to train the next generation of scientists that will be able to meet the, you know, the demands of, of the charges to come. At the same time, I think that COVID has shown us the incredible things that are possible when you do put that kind of um, emphasis and resources behind the science. One thing I want to follow up on too is, you, know, you mentioned with, with pharma and the kind of this idea of, of capturing, you know, huge amounts of money from indigenous knowledge. I mean, the same could be said, said for the dietary supplements market. And I know there are a lot of people that will probably be angry that I say this, but it's very true. It's a multi-billion dollar market and you don't see access and benefit sharing in most cases that I'm aware of with companies. And I can say from the perspective of being someone that works with communities that in fact often supply that market, in particular my work in the Balkans where many of these um, herbs are wildcrafted, meaning that local people go out into the woods and they collect these and often it's teenagers, sometimes it's children, 
Um, and they often have no idea what they're actually looking for. They, you know, it's one of the poorest regions of, of Europe and they're collecting anything that looks like Euro. I was actually in, in, um, Albania in 2019 pre pandemic. And one of my students that I mentor that's based in Kosovo, his doctoral dissertation work is on Euro. And he was just, he's an expert at this, which is always great to work with a student that's built up this expertise. And he was showing me all these different species. Like these are all getting sold as yarrow and it's being sold through a chain of middleman comes up to the village in this remote mountaintop, pays pennies for this huge amount of material. It's dried and mixed all together and it's sold to another middleman at the country level. And then that goes into Germany or to whichever place where they're processing this. And that becomes made into your yarrow extract or your yarrow tea or whatever is being sold in the US and Europe and beyond. And so the reality is, you know, we've done a lot with like fair trade coffee and thinking about fair trade and understanding how to promote local communities, but we are so far behind the, 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 we're so far behind when it comes to herbals and these wild crafted botanicals. And in fact, these kind of practices are actually putting many of these wild populations at risk um, because of over harvesting. And it's, you know, I'm, I don't see it as a fault of the local people that are collecting it. I think it's a, the model is driving them and, and this is a way that they can help bring in extra revenue when they're living in a state of extreme poverty. So there's, it's, it's more, it's about more than just pharma looking at herbs. There's actually, there's a huge industry around herbs already that we need to do more to make things more equitable. Mm. You did get some funding through the COVID-19 um, pandemic to start looking at your library as, you know, possible complement origin of, of remedies and approaches to, to this. What do you see as signs of hope in, in your library, in your research, in the culture of our relationship to plants with our understanding of medicine? First, I'll state, I know I talk about a lot of doomsday scenarios with biodiversity loss and antibiotic resistance, but, you know, I can talk about those comfortably because I am optimistic. I see, you know, I'm all about following the science and the science is very promising. We may have failures on the economic model side. We may have some failures in translation, but the science is there. And I think I'm also really optimistic based on the enthusiasm I've seen in students, not only at my own university, but also students that I mentor in different countries um, and postdocs that are really leading the charge to start investigating with greater scientific rigor, the species that they find in their own biodiversity hotspots in their own countries. And I think that's really where we need to go in the future. You know, if I had a billion dollars bestowed upon me to, to do what I think would be best, like I would establish this global network of scientists using scientists, working with scientists based in these countries where we have some of the richest existing biodiversity. This is not something that can be taken care of from an ivory tower in the West, from a well-funded lab. It has to be a network that has to be based in true spirit of collaboration with scientists that are from these countries and that have access not only to the biodiversity, but also to the cultural knowledge um, 
and to help them build up their research capacity and their intellectual property based on their own plants. I think that's that's really um, an important way forward. So I am optimistic. I think there's a lot of exciting things. I'm hoping to push forward tr through translation um, of some of our work, especially for eczema. Um, we're getting ready to you know, do some more work on our COVID project. And again, this technology that's starting to emerge that's allowing us to take a closer look at these complex mixtures, that I think is very promising. Um, and those types of tools will allow many scientists from across the globe to look at these, um, the incredible beauty and complexity that nature has to offer. I love that. And if, you know, as you think about home gardeners in our world today, mm -hmm. specifically perhaps in North America or Europe, if you offered out to them three or four suggestions on what they can do with their own gardens, with their own relationship with plants, with their own dollars spent, whether it's on, you know, herbal supplements or it's on plants in their garden um, or it's on their vote for uh, funding of research. What, what would be your recommendations for how we become positive agents participating yeah. in some of these processes where we see um, these dilemmas? Well, I think the first thing I would say is that as a home gardener, you've already taken a huge step forward in the right direction, right? Because you are taking intention and time to cultivate and grow things in your environment. You're becoming aware of, you know, the different factors that plants need um, within that specific environment. And hopefully you're enjoying the fruits of your labor through eating or engaging in some way with the plants that you're growing. I mean, I think that in order to make the biggest impact, we have to really think about the future generations and how they will engage with nature. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I was very fortunate to grow up in a very rural environment where I was very much encouraged to stay outside all day, disabled or not on crutches, hobbling along with one leg or not. I mean, you know, it was, it, it was that amazing ability to just be out and observe and engage with nature. And there's so many wonderful programs, school programs, community gardens, school gardens. Um, you know, here in Atlanta, we have a number of organizations like Trees Atlanta, Concrete Jungle. There's, there's usually in most communities, there's some kind of local organization you can get involved with. And I would say if there's a, a way to make a difference, start with your community, start with really helping to get children excited about nature and, and help teach them where their foods and medicines come from. Because what I've seen over and over again in communities is like when they have in, in traditional communities, if there are plants that they use and value in their own system of food or own system of medicine, those plants are conserved. The ones that they don't have a culture or history of using, those are the ones that are often subject to overharvesting or just sold into economic markets. And a similar parallel can be found in our own communities. If we don't have a relationship with those species that grow in our environment or that we cultivate ourselves, what is the impetus or the desire? Where's the desire going to come from to actually save those resources? So we have to teach people about the utility of these plants and, and kind of help nurture that that desire to learn more and to get to know the creatures in their environment. That would be the place I would, I would say to start. Yeah. And it's, it's even um, like the word 
utility seems like an impoverished word actually for mm-hmm. for all that is offered out by by our plants to us mm-hmm. in this world and and I know you um you celebrate that complexity um and and abundance in all that you do. Well, I, I really hope people will go listen to Foodie Pharmacology, which in all of her spare time, I don't know how you also run this podcast of great interest and um, engagement while you are running your extraordinary lab there at Emory. But um, I truly enjoyed The Plant Hunter, and I just wish you all the best with your research. Um, I know you are you are on the front lines of helping us stay healthier. Thank you so much. <laughs> In today's world of synthetic pharmaceuticals, Dr. Cassandra Quave believes our connection to the natural and plant world is in fact our greatest opportunity to discover new life-saving medicines needed for the challenges of our time. My conversation with Dr. Quave was longer than we could fit into our on-air time frame. For the full conversation with Cassandra, make sure to check out this week's podcast version of Cultivating Place under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. Dr. Quave is a leading medical ethnobotanist. Her lab is based at Emory University, where she is also a professor. Join us again next week when we dig into some of the longest standing gardening skills and capacities with garden historian John Forte, whose book, The Heirloom Gardener, invites us to lean into all we have always been able to support, sustain, and savor from our gardens for as long as people and plants have gotten together in their places. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you and by partner support from the California Native Plant Society. For more information and many images and graphics from Dr. Cassandra Quave's work, please see this week's episode show notes at cultivatingplace.com. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.